if you would open up your Bibles with me. We are reading from the book of Galatians this morning. Um, if you have a pew Bible, it's page 826. So we are reading from chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take the pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instruct, instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of God. Thank you, Jess. I uh, want to add my welcome to those that are visiting here this morning. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm the outreach pastor here at Cornerstone. And uh, uh, if you're here for the first time uh, or haven't been here in a while, we are working our way through the book of Galatians, which is not so much a book as it is a letter written by uh, the Apostle Paul to a, a group of people, to the church in an area called Galatia, whom he loves very much and who he uh, is cares for and is discipling, and he wants them to grow in faith. And so he's concerned. He's concerned that they have missed something, that they're losing track of the gospel of grace. And so he's writing this letter to really clarify what that means. What does it mean to be saved by grace and grace alone? And we've been using uh, this formula to help us understand this. Because to be saved by grace alone means that uh, it's entirely one-sided. Grace means that what you're bringing to the equation uh, does not count for anything. That it doesn't matter uh, what good things you're bringing, it doesn't matter what bad things you're bringing. Uh, for it to be grace means that it's entirely one-sided. And so you can't impress God with your good works and you can't let him down with your bad works uh, because it's grace. And as soon as we bring something to the equation, it doesn't work anymore. It's no longer grace. It ceases to be saved by grace. And so this is an incredibly... Uh, uh, freeing message. It has transformational power. And we believe that's at the heart of the gospel. And so we uh, seek to uh, remind ourselves of this all the time because we believe that's the hope of the world. And so Paul is unpacking this message for us because he says he wants us to, as he says in this passage, as Jess just read for us, to fulfill the law of Christ, which is uh, he references in chapter 5, uh, 
earlier in this letter. And he says, the law of Christ can be summed up in this one message, to love your neighbor as yourself. Which means that really the end goal of living the Christian life is to love people. To love people. Uh, it means that we do good things and we share the message of Christ, not for the end of that they may be converted, but we do good things and we share the message of Christ so that we can love them well. That's the end. The end is love. The means is serving. The means is doing good works. The means is sharing and speaking of Christ. But the end is not conversion. The end is love. That's a really, really important distinction. We start to treat people like projects instead of individuals when we rearrange the order. But the question is, and the question we have to just keep on asking ourselves over and over again is, what does it mean to love people? What does love actually mean? Um, and what we often do at this point is, uh, the word love sounds great. Yes, who wouldn't? That's a great message. Who wouldn't want to embrace this as a way of life? But what we do is we immediately smuggle in a cultural definition of love at that point. And uh, currently, the cultural definition of love here in Western, uh, uh, in the Western civilization, especially here in Canada, is highly self-centered and highly individual. It's self-focused and it's uh, community uh, negating. And so we, not only do we have to um, go to scripture for what's the end, but we have to go, what does that actually mean? What, what does it mean to love people well? What does the New Testament mean? What, is the whole, what does the word of God mean when he says to love your neighbor as yourself? That's, that's the question we need to keep on asking ourselves and uh, growing in. And Paul, in this point in his letter, has sort of had a turning point where he's, he spent a lot of time really unpacking the details of, of, this, of the gospel uh, and how it relates to the law. And now he's kind of beginning to uh, actually give us a bit more specifics about what that actually looks like in its expression. And last week, uh, Matt spoke on the passage pr just prior to this and looked at the fruit of the Spirit. What does the fruit of the Spirit look like in our lives? How does it transform our cravings? How does it transform our character? How does it transform our community? And now Paul is starting to uh, actually get a bit more specific in what even those things look like in their expression. And so uh, that's what we want to focus in on here. And, and you'll notice, actually, if you look at the different sections of this, he's, there's kind of, he's dealing with different relationships, with how we relate to different groups of people. And, uh, but before we go into that, I just kind of want to make a general observation. Uh, in this section, Paul assumes that now that you're a Christian, he's talking to Christians, so he says, now, now that you're a Christian, you're going to have all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. That's the assumption. Verse 1, you're going to fall into sin or you're going to find your friends falling into sin. He's assuming that's going to happen. Verse 2, there's going to be suffering and troubles and everybody's going to be burdened down. The assumption is you're all going to have burdens. Verse 3 to 5, there's going to be jealousy and we're going to be comparing ourselves to each other with people that we call friends. Verse 6 to 9, and the, 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 the talks about the difficulties that come between teachers and people. 
And so his assumption is that when you become a Christian, problems don't disappear. One of the, one of the things you can actually guarantee is that when you become a Christian, you're going to have all kinds of problems. The end. <laughs> Thank you for listening this morning. <laughs> but that's actually the major difference between Christianity and really any kind of cult, because a cult would say, take this magic pill and all your problems will disappear. And the hope of the gospel is that uh, when we embrace the gospel, we actually are given a glory and a purpose that rises above trials in our lives, that rises above problems that we will inevitably have. It gives us a higher purpose. It gives us a higher glory. And that's the hope of the gospel, not that poof, everything is going to be great. It's that in the midst of trials and tribulations, we have something deeper and stronger. We have a tower to run into. We have a strength. And so commentators, uh, as I read on this, uh, took note that this section of Galatians is almost like Proverbs, changing subjects quickly, adding his input, and then moving on to the next thing. And so he said, uh, a few of them said, every two or three verses could be sermons in and of themselves. And so I uh, struggled in my preparation this week, thinking, do I go and try to address everything that Paul says in this passage? on a surface level, or do I go a little bit deeper into one or two of them? And so I felt as I, as I started to bring together all my notes and everything that God was uh, leading me to focus primarily on the issues Paul addresses in verse 1 and 2, and as he expounds them in the following verses. And so uh, I think mostly because these are the things that I need to grow in the most, and so God was really trying to press into me. So uh, you'll have to join in on me as I process these things with God this morning with you. Um, as someone that has a lot to growing in all of these areas. If you want to have more thoughts on, on, on the other uh, statements in this passage, you can email me and I can give you uh, a sermon on those. You can email me at kevin at cc.church.ca. <laughs> so um, just feel free to do that. But seriously, I, have, I, uh, I do have uh, more thoughts on more verses because there's, there's lots to this. So if you want to talk about something I didn't reference uh, Talk to me at the connection time or afterwards or actually send me an email. Um, but this passage is dealing with relationships of various forms and how we should interact with them. And the first thing that we see is that there should be a balance in how we relate to others. When the gospel comes into your life, there will be a balance in your relationships. A balance of your natural tendencies, how you're naturally wired and geared, your personality... And then the gospel actually comes in and begins to transform and gives you a supernatural tendency and posture. And real relationships need to be characterized by both truth, say it as it is, and empathy. I'm there with you. I'm comforting you. It's okay. We need, well, that's actually how we're designed to work. We need those, both those things in our lives. And I think Every one of us is either naturally diplomatic, how can we play this out as carefully as possible, or we're direct. Just say it as it is. All of us will bend towards either one of those ways. Uh, you're either very sweet and kind and diplomatic, or you're just kind of really direct. My, I myself would lean towards a more direct approach. That's my personality. 
Uh, I, if someone's just kind of wants to say something to me and they're just, uh, you know, flowering, putting all these niceties, and I'm just, stop saying those things. I know what you're getting at. Just say it. That's how I tend to be. Of course, I'm not always like that. My, I, sometimes I'm like, well, why didn't they say it nicer? <laughs> but that's generally how I like to be interacted with, and that's generally how I interact with people. Uh, but the, the, the truth is we can't always be one way and we can't always be the other. We need to be both of these things together. And the gospel is actually the one place where these two things come together in one uh, sweep. And as we've said lots of times before, that uh, the gospel tells you that you're more wicked than you ever dared believed and that you're more loved than you've ever dared hope at the same time in Christ. It's direct and it's diplomatic. It's tough and it's tender at the same time. And the gospel can actually begin to transform us and can actually begin to add a super, supernatural element to our personality and in our relationships and how we deal with people. And one of the ways that we know we're becoming disconnected from the gospel is that the other side of it will, will, not, it will cease to uh, exist. It will fade away and maybe just die completely. That if you're a sweet heart, sweetheart and you're kind, you'll become a total coward and never speak up about truth. And if you're a direct type, you will just become harsh and angry. And gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit, will fade away. Jesus models both of these, both of these things really well in a lot of different ways. He can be gentle with people as they're caught in sin and embarrassed and he can flip over tables and call it out as it is and sometimes even in the exact same situation he's one way with one person and he's another way with an another person we all have natural temperaments we're not wise enough i'll speak for myself here i am not wise enough i'm not godly enough to always relate to people as they need to be related to we're not uh, relationally flexible or versatile enough to, to know in the moment how do I respond to this person in the way that they need. But Jesus always knows how to speak to someone who's caught in sin. Without the gospel, uh, the, super, the supernatural part of our uh, tendency will never really form. We can maybe get better at it if we try different strategies, but we need something done on our heart level. And that's where the gospel comes in. And so we see these two sides of Jesus' ministry, which I'm calling the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. There's a uh, section in a story in John chapter 11 where Jesus is interacting with Mary and Martha and Lazarus has just died. And Martha comes to him with one response, uh, upset that Lazarus has died, and she says, he says, don't worry, he's going to rise again. And she says, yeah, okay, generally, in a, in a, on the day of resurrection, I guess he'll be again. He says, no, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He's more direct with her. And, and then Mary comes, and she's upset about the exact same thing, and then what, what does he do? He just, there's the shortest verse in, in the Bible. It says Jesus wept. He just shed tears with her. We need both of these parts in our lives. We need to be interacting with each other in both of these ways, and it's extremely challenging to balance these things. 
And so we want to unpack this topic a bit, uh, the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. And so verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So I want to ask a few questions to help us kind of just to dig down into this idea of truth, of speaking the truth to people. I want to ask you a few questions of this. I think the answers are found in these words. So the first question I want to ask is, when should we do this? When should we be speaking up? The first answer I'd say is, it's not every time someone sins. It's going to take some wisdom. It's going to take some prompting from the Spirit. It's going to take some dependency, not on your own uh, perception sometimes, but on the Spirit's uh, prompting about how and when to do this. It's not, whenever you see someone sinning, your obligation is to speak up and let them know that they are sinning. It's not a law like that. It says if someone is caught in a sin, they're caught. They're trapped. And so, uh, Proverbs says that love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13 talks, it is a huge ex, uh, exposition of what love is. And it says that love gives the benefit of the doubt. And so when it says, when they're caught in sin, it's not we are, have a constant spirit of criticism. It says when they're caught, it means that it's, it's repeated, it's constant, it's happening over and over again in their life. They're not, uh, they're not seeing it. They're blind to it in some way. It's not that we, it's not that they, they've done it and now we jump on it and we almost after the fact justify and say what they did was wrong, I spoke up and it, it was wrong so I was in the right. No, there's a repetition to it. They're caught. You see someone doing it. And they probably, to be caught means they probably don't see it themselves. See, your biggest problem in your life right now is probably the thing that you don't know is a problem in your life right now. The biggest problem is when you're blind to it. As soon as you see it, it doesn't mean it's not a problem anymore, but as soon as you can see it, then you have actually uh, a way to start dealing with it. But when you're blind to it, that's when it's a real problem in our lives. And so if someone is struggling with something and they know it and they're working on it and they're praying about it and they have people around them that are working on them, it's not a time to jump in and say, you know, come down hard on them and jump all over them. To be caught in something means it's repetitious and it's, it's blind in some way. To be caught in something, and I want to point something out here too, is that... Uh, Generally speaking, the sin is not against you itself in this passage. In the New Testament and uh, the teaching of Scripture as a whole, generally speaking, when there's conflict between two different people, the motivation is restore the relationship. Restore the relationship. That's what we're supposed to do when we come to each other when if someone has sinned. I want to restore what's been broken between us. The, the thing of, uh, that's of most concern is the relationship, the connection between you and that person. 
In this passage, it's the, the motivation is to restore the person themselves. To restore the person themselves. And if, if someone has been sinned, if, you're, if someone has sinned against you, you can probably assume that you're not the best person to deliver bad news to them. It, you're probably not going to be the best person that they're going to hear this message from and say, oh, right, I see. Because why? We're going with a little bit of embarrassment. We're, there's, we're going with a bit of brokenness in relationship. And that person's probably not going to be able to hear the, maybe the exact same message that you're saying, as well as, as it might be from someone else who isn't coming with that baggage to the table. And so to, to restore someone in this passage who's caught in sin is not, well, they're sinning against me, and now it's my job to go and let them, uh, go and tell them and let them know. It's probably uh, best if you're the one being sinned against that it's you're not, it's not your job. Your job is to restore the relationship. And so what this, this has communal uh, implications as well because uh, sometimes we can say, well, that wasn't against me. I'm not hurt. It's none of my business. But the expectation uh, is that actually we're all caring for each other and you might actually be the best person to go and deliver this news. That if you come with an attitude of, Forgive me if I'm wrong. I, I, I could get this wrong here, but what I, what I seem to see is this happening. You know, it's in those moments where we can actually begin to say, yes. And God may want to use you in the life of someone else. And so don't just think, oh, that's none of my business because, it, you know, they didn't offend me and there's, we're fine. We have an obligation to speak into each other's lives. And so sin must be repeated. We have to be blinded to some way. Uh, we have to be able to be the right people to, to receive it. Who should you do this to? Who should you do this to? Notice here it says a brother. In the, new te- in the NIV will add brother and sister, which means it's your family. And the church is called the family. This is talking about Christians talking to Christians. As a general rule, it's not good for Christians to confront non-Christians about their sinful behavior. As a general rule, your job as a Christian is not to go out and let other, Christ- other non-Christians know that they're acting sinful. Your job as a Christian is to show them Jesus. And Jesus is the one that actually transforms their hearts. And that's where behavioral change comes from. And so it's, it's not just ineffective to uh, call out non-Christians about their sinful behavior. It's actually, uh, it can actually be uh, distortive because it's, it, it's creating the message of, in order for me to be a Christian, I need to change this. And you're immediately bringing them back to the wrong equation. In order to be a Christian, I need to stop doing this and this and this, and I need to start doing this and this and this. But in order to be a Christian, you don't need to have a change in your behavior. You need to have a change in the center of your solar system. That your life is now revolving around Jesus. Your decisions run through the filter of Jesus. That's what you need. And he takes care of your behavior. Through his church. And so this is not about talking to people that aren't of the faith. It's talking about the church, the family together 
Who does this? Who should be the ones to speak up? Uh, the one translation will say, you who are spiritual are the ones that should do this. You who are spiritual. So what does that mean? Does it mean, how long do you have to be a Christian in order to be considered spiritual? How many times do you have to pray in order to be considered spiritual? How many verses do you have to have memorized in order to be considered spiritual? Uh, what he's actually saying here is that you who have the spirit. Are you spiritual? Do you have the spirit? Yes, you're spiritual. So he means all of us. This isn't the role of the leaders exclusively. This isn't the role of the pastors. This isn't the role of the professionals. This is the call of this passage is to every person that has the Holy Spirit. What are we doing? What do you actually do? Now the word here, I love this. This is such a beautiful picture. The word here is restore. And uh, the English does not capture it well, but this is a word used uh, to put a dislocated bone back into place. That's what this Greek word was used for. And Paul uses this word intentionally. That to restore someone is to get them out of the pain of a dislocated bone and to bring it back into place so that they can operate as they're made to operate. They can live as they're made, created to live. It's a beautiful picture. I think sometimes we think that uh, sin is like a bullet or like a sliver, and it's something that's foreign, it's foreign to the body, and it's something that we just need to get this thing out of our lives. We just need to get this thing out, and then we're fine. And so if somebody says, my biggest problem is that I have a drinking problem, my biggest problem is that I'm an alcoholic. Now you do, that's a big problem. And it's a good thing to get alcohol out of your life. And that's, a, that's an enormous accomplishment if you can do that. But I would say to you that that's not your biggest problem. Sin is not something that comes into our body that's foreign. Sin is more like something that's actually good for us, but it's been put out of place. It's like a bone that has become dislocated. And so your main problem is, is always good things that should be in your life but have become too important. And so sex should probably be in your life, but it's, it might be dislocated. Careers should be in your life, but it may have become dislocated. Family, relationships, power, comfort, control, all of these things should be in your life. They're good things. But they may become they may become dislocated in you. To restore someone is to put the bone back in place. And that's that doesn't feel good. I I I really wish that I had had dislocated a bone so that I could give some great personal story about this. <laughs> but I haven't. But you can imagine. <laughs> Has anybody dislocated a bone here before? Yeah. How was it, Austin? Not fun. But it's so important to have that put back in place. And that process can be painful. 
but it's necessary so that we can actually operate the way that we were designed to operate. And so what should our posture be is the next question I want to ask. What should our posture be in these situations when we're called to these? He says, watch yourself that you may be tempted. Watch yourself that you may be tempted. You'll never do a good job restoring someone unless you feel just as weak spiritually as the person you're talking to. If you're coming to them and deep down in your heart you think, I'm so much better than you because I don't deal with this, I would never deal with this. Of course, Christians never say that statement out loud. So don't think, okay, I've never, I've never said that out loud. I, this isn't a problem for me. I'm, I'm saying, search your heart. Search your heart. Is this the posture of your heart? Because if it is, if you're thinking, but I'm a better kind of person, I would never do this, then your uh, attempt to restore that person will probably not go well. It's going to come through. We can see it. We can feel it in each other when we're viewing each other in this way. We need to see each other as, as weak spiritually as, as we see ourselves. So we need to have this posture when speaking truth, the ministry of truth, the ministry of tears. Verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And again, I like that Paul gives us this beautiful picture of this heavy weight kind of coming down on someone and you're trying to hold it up. You're holding it up and it's starting to crush you. And the picture here is that you actually come along beside someone and you help them hold it up. It's a beautiful picture. And so how, how do we do this? The first thing I would say is that you, you have to get into their shoes. You have to pretty much get right beside them. You can't really help hold up the weight unless you're right beside them, offering your strength. And so you have to practically get right next to them, which means you have to get into their world. You have to be, and we have to be involved in each other's lives to such a degree that we're aware of what's going on. We have to be open enough with each other and vulnerable enough with each other that we are aware and we're letting people get in beside us. But it also means that you as the person coming beside someone have to be able to make sure you're understanding what they're going through. Have you ever had the experience of someone coming to you and after speaking with them, you felt like they just really understood what you were going through. They just really connected and listened well. And it, you felt like, man, they understand it. And you feel better afterwards. You actually feel better afterwards. Your sickness is just as bad. You probably owe just as much money. You know, the, that relationship is just as broken after you've had that conversation. But there's something about someone coming along beside you and saying, I understand, I get it. That makes you feel better. It feels like the burden is somehow lifted up in some way. And so in order for us to actually 
help each other bear each other's burdens, we need to be able to start listening to each other and start coming to each other in empathy. God has a lot of work to do in my heart with this. And we need to, all of us need to seek and grow in, in this way. To cry with people. And so in order to actually help someone carry their burden, you have to let some of the weight actually become yours. Which means you have to actually suffer a little bit. Holding up a heavy weight uh, will actually begin to tire your arms out as well. And so uh, in order to actually come along beside people, we need to let some of their suffering kind of come on to us. And so if you think of someone struggling with uh, financial problems, we could say, well, I, I can help them, but I can't actually afford to help them. What do we mean by that? We mean it, it may actually hurt us financially to help them, which means some of their suffering is going to actually come on to us. Jonathan Edwards has this quote. He says, if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is otherwise not likely to be relieved we should be willing to suffer with him, to take part of his burden on ourselves. How else is that rule of bearing one another's burdens to be fulfilled? I'm not saying that we have an obligation to always give finances to each other, and it doesn't matter what your financial situation is, you have to. But I'm saying is that just because it costs us something and maybe hurts our comfort, that that's not a reason to not do it because coming along beside people means that we're going to actually take on some of their suffering as well. And so you might say, I can't afford the time, which may mean that, you know, I don't, I don't want to actually take on the suffering of that person's time because that means I'm going to have less time to do the things that I really want to do. Or maybe emotionally it's draining on you to, to get invested into broken people. And there's a cost. And so we need to be willing. We need to be able to search our hearts and be open before God and say, is this in wisdom, is this the time for me to come along beside people and give? And if just because it costs me something and I won't be able to afford this or I won't have the time to do this or I won't have the emotional energy to do this thing, that may not be the reason why you shouldn't do it. So you need to understand them. You've got to be able to suffer along beside them. And you've got to actually be able to carry their burden. Which means that if you get involved in people's lives to such a degree that you're suffering alongside them, but now you're just feeling crushed by them. Now the burden is actually beginning to weigh down on you and you're beside them, but you're actually starting to go down as well. It may mean... that the motivation for caring for them may not be to purely carry their burden. It may mean that part of the reason we're helping someone else and helping to carry the burden is that so we can actually feel better about ourselves. If you're finding that you just don't have the strength to do things always, to uh, come alongside people in a, in a way that is actually supporting them. 
and you, but you care for them, but you're actually feeling crushed by it. How do we find this balance? How do we actually find the balance of, of helping people carry their burdens but not be crushed by them ourselves? This is where I think living out the law of Christ makes all the difference. This is where the gospel comes and actually gives us a strength. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And the psalmist didn't understand what that meant completely at the time. And Isaiah 53 is this beautiful passage where they're actually giving a prophetic word about what Jesus would do. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took on our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And who, his wounds are healed. And so here's the point I want to end with. Is that the one thing that we should never try to bear, because if we try to bear it, it will always crush us, is our own salvation. Your salvation will crush you every single time you try to carry it yourself. And there's one person that has already done that for you. And so if you get into people's lives and you find yourself being overwhelmed, you give and you give and you give too much. You open up and you open you up too much. And you're getting depressed and you're falling under the weight. It may mean that your motivation is not exclusively about helping that person. It may mean that you're trying to prove to yourself that you're worthwhile which means that we've smuggled ourselves into the equation. We've smuggled ourselves into the equation. We've added ourselves back in. And that may be the reason why you're feeling crushed. It's not because of the burden of that person. It's because of the burden, the burden of your own salvation that Jesus came to take care of. And so when we look not on the focus on the weight itself but we focus on Jesus then we've actually be able to love and serve people with a greater degree of freedom we can come along beside them and help them carry the weight without feeling like we have to take on the justification of ourselves in the midst of that and so the pe to be the people that love people well to be a church to be a family that cares for each other well we have to be passionate about the ministry of truth we have to be passionate about the ministry of tears we need to keep our eyes fixed on the one that did those things perfectly and was crushed so that our burden could be borne. let's pray so father we thank you that jesus came to bear our burdens so that we don't have to avoid other people's burdens and we don't have to worry about being crushed by them So would you help us to see how we're not coming to you in the gospel, how, how the ways in which we're being tough and not tender, or we're being tender and not tough, God, would you help our hearts to see, to see you and to see each other as you see them. And so, Father, would you make us a church, a family that cares about both these things. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.